0: I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you have them, to Galatians chapter five, to the New Testament, Galatians five. And uh, as many of you know, we're in a series right now called Two Ways to Live in which we're looking at what scripture refers to as the fruit of the spirit. Uh, and just in case you're a guest, maybe this is your first Sunday with us. So just I just want you to know all along through the series, we've been stressing the importance of spiritual self-assessment, you know, spiritual reflection, why? Well, as award-winning author Oz Guinness points out in his book Renaissance, he says, all too often as Christians we've set out high, clear statements of the authority of the Bible, but flout them with lives and lifestyles shaped more by our own sinful preferences and by modern fashions and convenience. All too often we've attacked the evils and injustices of others while we've condoned our own sins, turned a blind eye to our own vices, and lived captive to materialism and consumerism in ways that contradict our faith. And so uh, Guinness calls us in the church to, uh, to deep soul searching, you know, to a, a personal assessment of our lives because the reality is this, what we do every day reveals who we are. In his letter to the church, the early church, the Apostle Paul explains that when we experience the grace of God through faith in Jesus, that God's spirit comes into our lives in a real way and begins to transform us Moving us away from where we're just, you know, uh, gratifying the desires of our sinful nature and leading us to a very different existence altogether. Um, how do we know if that transition is happening? Paul says there's tangible evidence of it. He says, look, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies. And the like. And, and all of these things that Paul mentions here are things that we sense, we sense are wrong, they're hurtful, they're unhealthy. Uh, by contrast, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. And something down deep in our humanness tells us, yes, these, these things are right. These things are healthy. They're beneficial. This list really describes the kind of men and women we're meant to be. You know, Christians and non-Christians agree. Not only do we admire these virtues, we desire them in ourselves and in others. But just keep in mind, we don't try to change our attitudes and behaviors to become Christians. No. Our attitudes and behaviors change because we are Christians. See, faith in Jesus changes things. God's grace changes things. The spirit of God changes things. He changes us from the inside out. And Paul describes these changes uh, using fruit as a metaphor, fruit representing that which grows above ground where everybody can see it. It's the same metaphor Jesus used when he said to his followers, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each, Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. And as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, when Paul uses the term fruit, it's in the plural, indicating that all of these, all of these attending virtues are produced by the Spirit's presence and power in our lives. It's not just one or two of them. Uh, all of them are growing and manifesting themselves in increasing degrees. So up until this point, we have talked about love, joy, peace, and patience. And this morning, I want to consider how the fruit of the Spirit is kindness, and to get us started, uh, this may sound like an absurd question, but what is kindness? I mean, what is it? Out of curiosity, I figured I'd Google it, because, you know, uh, if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? So <clears throat> I uh, Googled it, and uh, Google took me to, first, a popular online lexicon, uh, lexicon and uh, the folks there define kindness as the quality or state of being kind. And I don't want to be unnecessarily... Critical, but uh, <laughs> that's not really that helpful to me. You know what I mean? I mean, I always thought that when you use a word in a definition, when you're defining a word, you don't use the word in the definition. So uh, I moved on, I went to Wikipedia, another online resource, and it was a little more helpful. The Wikipedia folks say kindness is the act or state of charitable behavior, uh, charitable behavior to other people. And then I looked at urbandictionary.com, which defines kindness as the act of going out of your way to help someone in need and showing you care, something that apparently doesn't exist in this world anymore. (laughs) Uh, Here's my point. Sometimes when when studying uh, scripture, the specific nuances of words get lost in translation. And so it's really important, when possible, to consider the original language to get a more accurate understanding of what the text is saying, what it's teaching. Uh, and in our text this morning, the, the English word that we use, we translate, kindness is the word we use, um, translates a rather uh, uncommon Greek term. Uh, and, and it's, in, the, uh, in this particular form, this term is used only 10 times in the New Testament. Uh, it's the term uh, uh which is the noun form, meaning we translate kindness. In its adjectival form, it's uh, krestos, or krestos, uh, which means kind. Uh, and I'll explain why that's significant in a few minutes, but basically the term means to act charitably, benevolently, generously toward others. And it's not just a feeling, it's not just a, an attitude or a consideration, it's action. In the Old Testament, there's this notion of kindness uh, is reflected in the Hebrew term chesed, sometimes rendered loving kindness. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament that portrays what this kindness looks like in very practical terms. It's the story of the the friendship between David and King Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, The king, uh, Saul, had uh, become very jealous of David because of his military prowess and his popularity with the people, and and, uh, Saul was very threatened by him and considered killing him, having him executed. Well, Jonathan finds out about this, and he goes and he tells David, he warns him, and uh, David is about to take off, run, and get away. Before he does, he and Jonathan uh, uh, make a commitment to each other. They make a vow that if one of them is killed, the other would care for their friend's descendants, their children. Well, as it turns out, both Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. David becomes king, and when he does, he fulfills his, his promise, Uh, When trying to find out more about Jonathan's family, David asks his servants, he says, is there anyone left in Jonathan's family to whom I can show God's kindness? And he learns about, after a while, he learns about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, a young man who was crippled in a fall at age five, so he was unable to walk. Uh, And what does David do when he finds out about him? Think nice thoughts, experience warm, fuzzy feelings? Maybe. Uh, But he does more than that. He takes action. He sends for this young man, who had nothing and no one, by the way, and he brings him into his court and he says to this young man, I will surely show you kindness. He says, I am going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your father, your grandfather, and you will always eat at my table. To which this young man responds, why would you do this for a dead dog like me? That's how he responds. I'm just a dead dog. And basically, David was saying, look, I will graciously, generously treat you like my own son. I am going to be kind to you, just as God has been kind to me. And so based on, uh, on, on the Hebrew text, based on the Greek term Paul uses, when it comes to defining kindness, again, it's not merely a state of mind or an invisible attitude or an emotion. Or emotion. It's the act of graciously and generously giving to and going out of our way to help people in need. So it's a very practical term. And it's always important for us to remember that when we read about the fruit of the Spirit, we are essentially reading a description of God himself, of who he is, of what he's like. And God is really the model of kindness. I mean, think about it. Uh, throughout Scripture, from start to finish, God God's kindness, which flows out of his love, hence the word loving kindness, is a core attribute of uh, of of his divine nature. In the Old Testament, God said, I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. And so in the same way that God is all about love, joy, peace, and patience, God is also all about kindness, taking action to meet the needs of a broken world, i.e. God graciously and generously gives to and goes out of his way to help needy people like me. In fact, God's kindness is ultimately and most fully expressed in in the giving of Jesus, right? Who, through his life, humility, mercy, servanthood, and eventually his sacrificial death on the cross, undeniably demonstrates the extent to which God's kindness will go to rescue we who deserve nothing. Some of you know, Jesus taught his disciples to live this way toward people, you know, to follow his example, to demonstrate lives that are characterized by kindness. And this is how Jesus describes it to Peter, John, and the rest. He says, he goes, look, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. He said, if you only, if you only love those who love you, what credit is that? Even sinners love those who love them. If you, give to the, uh, if you give to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Jesus said, but love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Give without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And so here's the overall deal. God is kind, he is gracious, he is generous and he's going to incredible lengths to offer help to those who need it, all of us. And when we accept his help, when we experience his grace and kindness through faith in Jesus, the Son of God, the Spirit of God then comes and and begins to produce in us the same kindness toward others. In other words, what what we graciously experience uh, by the Spirit's power, we graciously demonstrate. Now, as those in the church today, as Christians, can we say that that's true in our lives? With integrity, can we say that's true? of our lives. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna rush through this here I, I, because I think it's important for us to, uh, to reflect on for a second. I mean, if I were to ask people in your life, someone who knows you, your parents, your siblings, a spouse, friend, a roommate, you know, those you work with or commute with, you go to school with, your teachers, your neighbors, somebody that knows you, if I ask them to describe you, would they say you're a kind person not just polite, you know, cordial, courteous, nice, friendly, but you go out of your way to graciously and generously help those in need no matter who they are. Would they say that about you? If so, great. If not, why not? As followers of Jesus Paul says, God's spirit will produce this kindness in our lives. He will. And so there's this there's this disclosure of kindness. And what do I mean by that? I mean that kindness discloses, it reveals who we are, or who's, really whose we are. The teaching of Scripture is that as God's people, the recipients of his compassion and generosity and grace, we will mirror those things. You know, we will be men and women of compassion, grace, and generosity. There's a, there was a time in uh, Israel's history where that wasn't the case. <clears throat> and in the Old Testament, in one instance, uh, God challenges his people. He's actually rebuking the Israelites for, for uh, not giving to the poor. These, this is the list. Not giving to the poor, not defending the oppressed, not caring for orphans and widows, i.e. They lacked, they lacked kindness. And so he said to the people, look, you come to temple. Come into the temple for the services and you, you fast, you, you sing, you read the scripture, you perform rituals, you burn your incense. He says, you spread out your hands in prayer but I am weary of your worthless assemblies. I hide my eyes from you. I am not listening. Summation. It is very possible to believe in God and be religious, but not really know him, or have a right relationship with him, or have experienced his kindness. Jesus said a very similar thing. In fact, Jesus said that on the day of judgment... Uh, he's going to take everyone who claims to be a follower of his. He's going to divide true believers from false believers, basically. And he's going to say, he says, I'm going to say to some, come, enter the kingdom of heaven. For I was hungry and you fed me, and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was without shelter and you, gave me, you took me in and gave me a place to stay. I was sick and you visited me, i.e. you were kind to me. And the response is going to be, Lord, when would would we do all this for you? When, When did we do all this for you? And he says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for some of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And to everyone else, Jesus will say, you guys did none of these things. Because you turned your back on those in need, you turned your back on me. Depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know how you feel about it, but that is a rather unnerving text, you know, a text that begs the question, well, if it's true that we're saved by grace alone, not works, then why, why, why did Jesus say that? What was he getting at? The only answer is this, that while acts of kindness don't save you, they do prove whether or not your faith is real or merely religious lip service. For the fruit of the Spirit at work in your life and in my life is kindness. A gracious and generous giving to and going out of our way to help people in need. Now, in conversations like this, inevitably, the question comes up from someone who says, "Well, look, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how this is working out for me because you know I, I work downtown. I take the train. I get I get I get out of the train. I'm don't going down the street. There's always I walk by people every day on the street asking for money, asking for help. What am I supposed to do, man? What am I supposed to do? Empty my wallet and my purse and." Uh, my response is no, not necessarily. I mean, I think, I think when it comes to helping people, I mean, really helping people, the key is not, the key is, is to not act, uh, or the key is to act, not react. Act, not react. You know what I mean by that? And what I mean is, there may be instances where you feel that a spontaneous reaction of generosity towards someone, whether it's on the street or somewhere else, this a spontaneous reaction of generosity is what God wants you to do. So you do it and that's fine. But that can't be the main way we exercise kindness. There, there should be a, a strategy to our kindness, an intentionality to it. In other words, we should, we should give our money where we know it's going to be used well and people are going to benefit physically and spiritually. And we should consider how and where to best use our time and invest that time and where to expend our energy in serving others. We need to think carefully about that. We need to to think strategically about it and not just view kindness as a random deal. Some of you may remember uh, several years ago a college professor in California, his name is Chuck Wall. Uh, Chuck was teaching a class on human relationships, and in reaction to all the violence he was seeing reported in the news, one day he gave 18 of his students an assignment to at some point during that day commit one random act of kindness to selflessly help somebody who needed it, whether it was through money, time, whatever, however. And from that classroom assignment evolved a cultural phenomenon where suddenly books and commercials and billboards and the media, they were all promoting the idea. And when Oprah Winfrey got on board, man, it blew up. Everybody started talking about random acts of kindness. You guys remember that? Um, To a great extent, uh, the popularity of that has fizzled out, but it was a very positive thing. Because let's face it, I mean, in the context of an increasingly selfish, greedy, me-first culture, the thought of getting people to do one spontaneous act of kindness a day is quite extraordinary. But just so you know, what Paul is talking about here is not an isolated, one-time, random gesture. Paul is saying that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, there's this, there's this everyday consistency uh, to our kindness. In other words, kindness is becoming the norm for us all the time. It's, it's not the exception. It's not an event. It's not a program. It's not an isolated act. It is a lifestyle of generously giving of ourselves, our time, our energy, our money to and for others. So again, with that being the case, would would people around you say, yeah, so-and-so is truly a kind person. They really are, are a kind person. Is that how people see you? Is that how God sees you? Uh, In a letter to Christians in the early church in the city of Colossae, uh, which is a city in Asia Minor, Paul writes this, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, and patience. And the idea of being clothed means that when people look at you, that's what they see. You're kind of draped. You're just draped in kindness. When Paul wrote to Jesus' followers in the city of Ephesus, he says, he says, this is interesting. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Be kind. Yeah, I thought, I thought about that. Sometimes we, we sense that God is calling us to generosity and kindness and all this, but we don't do it. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God who is leading you to be this way. Be kind, be compassionate to one another. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us. So, so really, Paul couldn't have, couldn't have made it any clearer how our lives are to be lived Lived out every day as expressions of love and kindness toward others. I mentioned this last week, but in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, there's a chapter in that letter that uh, people like to read at weddings, right? It's chapter 13. It's called the love chapter. Uh, and as I mentioned to you last week, Paul in that chapter, is not, he's not writing about marriage there. He's not writing a wedding poem. He was writing about healthy relationships. He was writing about the nature of genuine Christian community. And as he does, he offered these words. Love is patient, right? And we said, conversely, patience is love. But the very next thing he says is love is kind. Therefore, conversely, kindness is love. So you can't have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. Kindness is really love in action, that's what it is. It's, it's not, it not only pays attention to the needs of others, but it means we go out of our way to help, to give, to sacrifice, assist, serve both family and strangers, friends and enemies, those inside the church and those outside the church. I mean, let's, let's, be, let's be upfront about this. We live in what has become an incredibly self-centered, self-protective, and self-serving culture. And most of what we do every day, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time and our resources, the way we make our decisions, reflect the fact that we're mostly about ourselves. Right? We, I, mean, I mean, we are. Life is about my comfort, my stuff, my home, my security, my free time. And the temptation is to hedge on this issue of kindness because it forces us out of this self-centered existence uh, and it calls us to self-sacrifice. And we say, oh, okay, well, I'll do a little if I can. And then our excuses betray us. I'm I'm too busy. I'm too uncomfortable with that. I'm I'm too afraid, too nervous. I'm too educated. I'm too uneducated. I'm too cultured. I'm too tired. I'm too this, that, and the other thing. I, 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 I. And, and if you think that as Christians, we're immune, somehow immune to this calloused self-obsession, think again, man. The current of our culture runs fast and deep and it's very easy to get swept away and be no different than anybody else. And it seems to me that's why Paul warns Christians in the church about what life would be like in the days prior to Jesus' return. He says, look, people who are gonna be lovers of themselves, Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, ungrateful. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, treacherous, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What does he mean by that? He means being religious and claiming to know God, but having lives that deny that to be true. Because to know God is to know grace, and to know grace is to know Jesus. To know Jesus is to experience the transforming power of his spirit who produces in and through us more and more and more lives characterized by kindness. Is that who we are? Is it? You know, I tell you, I'm grateful to be part of this church community. It's a community willing to take steps uh, of faith individually and corporately to cultivate this spiritual fruit of kindness. Which is exactly why when we talk about church, we say we don't wanna do, just do church, we wanna be the church. Locally, regionally, global, we wanna be the church, which is why, for example, every Sunday, our Manna team uh, welcomes uh, and ministers to our friends who are homeless in the community, who are suffering uh, difficult situations for whatever reason. Are in, are in transitions. Individuals who most in the suburbs of Chicago want to ignore and pretend don't exist. It's why in places like Kolkata, India, we, we just built a home for underage girls who are rescued out of the sex trade there. Mahima home means glory home, which by the way is bursting at its seams with young girls. It's why this past spring we partnered with some friends to build a boys' home in Kolkata uh, for street kids born into brothels, recognizing that they, in turn, become the pimps and the perpetrators. And so rescuing the girls is only part of the equation. We gotta rescue the boys too. And so we opened uh, a house in June, which is also bustling with young men. It's why we work with schools along North Avenue Uh, helping to tutor to our east, helping to tutor and mentor at-risk students from under-resourced families. Um, This past year, we started, not only with our mentoring and and other programs there, but we started an educational intervention program that has produced incredible results. The kids that are part of it, who are at the highest risk, uh, just um, tested higher than their peers throughout the district. I mean... That's what the church is supposed to be about, right? Practical kindness. Do you you realize that it was through kindness the earliest followers of Jesus caught the attention of people and, and impacted and changed their communities, their culture, and their world? There's a history to Christian kindness. Unfortunately, many of us in the modern Western church tend to view impacting our world for Jesus as, as primarily resting in the rational explanation of the good news. It's, in other words, we see it as it's, it's through our words, it's through teaching, it's the sharing of information that does the trick. But life is, life is so much more than just reason. And to think that sharing the gospel is just about rational arguments and verbal presentations is very procrustean. Do you know what that is? Do you know who Procrestes was? In ancient Greek mythology, he was the son of Poseidon. And Procrestes was an evil innkeeper who insisted that his guests fit into his iron bed perfectly. Although they didn't know he had two beds. (laughs) So no one ever fit it. And so what he did is, those who were too short, he stretched them. uh, And those who were too tall, he chopped off limbs, heads, feet, whatever he needed to surplus inches. And he forced them into his arbitrary mold. And sometimes as Christians, I think we do the same when it comes to the idea of outreach or evangelism or whatever word you want to use. We kind of force it in, into the bed of rationalism. And we cut ourselves off from the need to demonstrate the kindness of God. But human life is both rational and experiential. Certainly, Jesus understood that. I mean, let's not forget what Scripture says about Jesus, that he was was powerful how? In word and deed, truth and action, rational and experiential. And that was true of the early church. The unprecedented kindness of Christians is one of the things that just baffled the pagans of, Greek, of the Greeks and Ro- Greek and Roman pagans—they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't get the whole grace thing. They didn't—they didn't get the generosity thing. They didn't get the self-sacrificial thing. They didn't get it. Uh, in fact, this guy Julian, sometimes called Julian the Apostate, um, this is—that's uh, a taken from a coin. Uh, the ancient Roman Empire. He was the last true pagan Roman Empire. He hated Christianity. He um, wanted to destroy it and revive paganism, but he was smart enough to know that Christianity flourished under martyrdom, and so he took a uh, tried to take a non-violent approach to stamping Christianity out. He barred Christians from holding public offices and, and positions of authority. He uh, forbid them to teach grammar, rhetoric, and philosophy. He built new pagan uh, temples and spruced up the old ones. But he got very frustrated when he realized none of it was working. That the church was was growing and expanding uh, faster than ever. And so he wrote a letter to a pagan priest admitting that they were never going to stop this Christian thing, this movement. And this is what he writes. Nothing has contributed more to the progress of these Christians as their charity to strangers. Not only do they care for their own poor, but for ours as well. While pagan priests neglect the poor, they hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and kindness. See, at at the time, this is how it worked. Greeks would try to take care of Greeks, Romans would try to take care of Romans, J- Jewish people would try, try to take care of the Jewish poor, and along come the Christians who started taking care of everybody, it didn't matter who they were. They were Christians were, were generous with their time and their money helping, helping those who needed help, no matter, no matter where they're from or, 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 or what the need was. For example, when the Romans would cast uh, elderly slaves out into the streets to die, which was common, the Christians went out and cared for them. The, the, the church clothed and fed them. When the Romans tossed unwanted infants on garbage dumps outside their cities, Christians went out and collected those children and raised them as their own. When cities were decimated by the plague and people were running for their lives, it was the Christians who stuck around and served the sick even to the point of death and you know, the, the taking of their own lives. The practical, visible, loving kindness of Jesus' followers shut the mouths of their critics and gave credibility to their message of God's love and grace. Rational, experiential, word and deed. As historian Eberhard Arnold puts it, most astounding to the outside pagan observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of the Christian communities through voluntary works of love. Christians spent more money in the streets than followers of other religions spent in their temples. You see, in the pagan culture of ancient Rome, Christianity made a spiritual difference because love was on display for everybody to see and experience the undeniable kindness and radical generosity of Christ's followers validated the truth of the gospel of grace. In fact, remember the Greek term I mentioned earlier for, for kind, krestos? That word in the first century, that term was so close to the Greek term for Christ, Christos that among the Romans, the two became inadvertently interchangeable. And so it was very common for people to refer to Jesus' followers, not as Christians, but as the kind ones. The kind ones. Is that a label our culture places on us? And what would happen if you and I, our church, became more and more known by our surrounding community as the kind ones of Parkview? Better yet the kind ones of Jesus. Listen, here in Galatians 5, Paul is saying that when we experience God's kindness, when we experience God's grace through faith in Jesus who offered himself for our sins to rescue us from evil and give us life, dead dogs deserving nothing, receiving everything. When we embrace that reality and experience it The Spirit of God comes and begins to transform and produce tangible, experiential, observable evidence of his power and presence in us. It proves we are his. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. The gracious and generous giving to and going out of our way to help those in need, no matter who they are. May we become known as the kind ones of Jesus in our community. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that um, we would recognize the history of kindness of your people and the legacy that's gone before us to those men and women in the early church who lived like Jesus, who mirrored his grace and his compassion and his kindness to them. And as we think back, we, we, we look back on history, we, it's undeniable. We, we can see the impact it had not just on a, a small community, not just on a culture, but on the world. It changed the world. Truth and action. Um, word and deed. Rational and experiential. I pray, Lord, that we would be your true people. And that we would allow your spirit to work in us in such a way that, that we become known as the kind ones of Jesus. But that requires honesty. It requires that we take some time to think about who we really are individually. Um, are we just paying lip service to you? Are we just religious? Or are we truly um, people of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. I pray that we would open ourselves up to the work of your Spirit, that your Spirit would speak to us this morning and reveal to us what is true about ourselves. And may we have the courage to admit it, and then may we give you the freedom to change us. Not for our sakes, but for the sake of the world, for the sake of those least the least of these brothers and sisters who are in need, not just of physical things, but in need of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. So I don't, I don't really know what to add to that. <laughs> I mean, that, if that's our prayer and we mean it and we welcome God's word, work in our lives, I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna be known as the, as the, the kind ones. Not only the kind ones, because sometimes you know we think we look at the fruit of the spirit and we think, oh, I can be kind, but I don't have to be joyful, or I can be kind, but I don't have to be loving, or I can be kind, but I don't have to be patient. No, no, all those things are working together. All those things are becoming more and more part of who we are as a person and corporately as a church. Man, my hope is that my hope and prayer is that that's true for each of us. And if if this is kind of a new thing for you, maybe you. Maybe you're totally irreligious and you just happen to come in here because someone invited you or maybe you grew up in a, in a, a religious tradition that was more about guilt and, and trying to work your way through ritual and all those things and, and you've never really understood the grace of God. Understand, that's, that's what it's about, man. It's about, that's what Christianity is about. The kindness of God extended to dead dogs like me. The grace of God. Um, embracing that because of Jesus. Embracing Jesus. Uh, that's what it means to be a Christian. And I hope you've done it. If you want to talk more about that, some of our prayer team folks will be down here following this service. Um, you can make your way down and talk with them. But I encourage, why don't you stand with me? I encourage you folks, let's, let's as a church, let's actually commit ourselves to being kind to our world and generous to those in need for the sake of the gospel so that what be, we would be called the kind ones of Jesus. Let me pray for you, and then we're dismissed. Lord, I pray now that as we leave the building, as we go out to our lives, as people see us, I pray that they would see each of us, they would see us as a church, clothed in kindness. Um, And I pray that as they see that in us, that they would see you in us. And that we would impact the lives of people who you care deeply about. And so may your hand of peace, power, strength, kindness graciousness rest on us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.